Okay, good morning again. Get your Bibles out. Open up your Bible apps. It's time for us to dig back into the book of John. And before we do that, I'm going to do a couple of things. But if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, just go ahead and put your hand up. And the ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along with as we get into the word of John again this morning. And if you're receiving that Bible and you currently do not have a Bible of your own, just keep the one that you receive and take it with you and dig into it with us um, every day, hopefully, every day. Okay, so um, I want to explain, first of all, why I look like Edward Bottle Hands. And secondly, why we have signs in the room today. So I'm going to do this at the same time. First of all, these bottles are a reminder that today is the last day to turn in bottles full of change for Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. We have a deep appreciation for the ministry that Amnion has. Um, it has changed so many lives, saved so many lives. It's a beautiful, beautiful program that's available in our community. And we, we do support that program in various ways. This is one of those ways. You had an opportunity to take these home and fill them up with change and bills and checks, whatever. They're due today. And so what I want to do to kind of bump things up a little bit is I'm going to give a bottle out to each section here, and you're just going to pass them back through the rows of your section. Fill them up as it goes, okay? If you happen to have change with you, great. Drop it in here. Bills, checks, whatever. Um, if you don't have anything with you, it's fine. I just added this last moment. This is just how we're going to boost what we do for Amnion, okay? So while I do this, while I get this started, I want to talk to you about the signs around the outside of this room that identify the sections that you're sitting in. Because you are now identified for the next little while by me as a certain type of person. Okay? So if you're sitting in this section right over here, that sign says the details. This is for the analysts in the group. And let me tell you why I'm splitting things up here. Because we're going to hit a passage today. We're going to hit a story in the book of John. John chapter 2. And this story is so full, it is so rich, there is so much going on in this story that I do not expect any one of you to remember all of it. You just remember the stuff about your section. Okay, so I'm going to talk for a little while about some of the details from the story. This group, you just remember the details. Don't worry if you don't remember the rest of this stuff, but that's your job for this section. I'll talk to you in a little while. This section back here, your sign says the culture. These are my anthropologists. And I'm going to talk to these guys as if they're anthropologists. I'm going to talk a little bit about the culture that's happening in the story that we're going to cover this morning. There's some incredible stuff in there. I'm going to talk about that for a while. You guys remember about the culture and how this story related to the culture at that time, okay? This section, your sign says the wedding. Yeah, these are the romantics. These are the romantics. Uh, when I talk about the wedding, that's what you guys have to remember. Is what was meant by the wedding. Why a wedding? All that kind of stuff. I'm going to get to you guys, okay? The romantics. Back here on this side, your sign says the miracle. You're the Pentecostals. Okay? So, so give me a little hands in the air. Give me a little hallelujah. You're the Pentecostals. You're all about the miracle. We're going to talk about the miracle when I get to you guys, okay? This last section up here in the front, sign says the wine. Let your mind go and just decide what we're going to call this group. I'm going to call them the partiers. Okay? And there's a reason for that. I will explain why I'm calling this group the partiers. Um, they own it. Believe me. Um, so, at this moment, if you are uncomfortable where you're sitting because of the sign, feel free to go ahead and move and sit somewhere else. 
But all I'm asking you to do is just this morning, you just remember the stuff that I cover in your section. And honestly, I take this very lightly. There's a lot to remember. Um, but I'm going to break it down into these sections. I'm going to work through the details, the culture, the wedding, the miracle, and the wine. We're going to talk about all that related to this story. Let's back up a little bit and review real quickly what we've talked about in the book of John so far. Back at the beginning of the book. Jesus is baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit and he begins his earthly ministry, which he had been preparing for the whole time. Now God anoints him to start doing what he called him to do. And his ministry begins and he gets the power that goes with it to carry out that ministry. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Messiah. He makes it very clear when he baptizes him that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. And so now we've identified who this book is all about. It's about Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Two, then two of John the Baptist's disciples follow Jesus when they meet him. It's Andrew and somebody else. Andrew then goes and gets Simon, his brother. Simon meets Jesus. Jesus renames him Peter. I'll preach that one again then. Then Jesus finds Philip. Philip decides to follow Jesus. Jesus invites Philip. He says, follow me. Follow me. And Philip begins to follow Jesus. Philip then goes and gets who? Nathaniel. Good. We're on track. You didn't expect it the first time. Philip goes and gets Nathaniel. Jesus sees Nathaniel, identifies Nathaniel, says that he has seen him before supernaturally, identifies him, and opens his eyes wide to who he is, to who Jesus is. And Nathaniel becomes a follower of Jesus as well. And now we move on to a very exciting point in Jesus' life and his ministry. That's the story we're going to cover today. John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. John 2. 1 through 12. This is what John writes about this incredible event. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. All right. So this is our passage for today. This is the story that we're going to work with. It is a remarkable one. It is a miraculous one. It is a full one. Let's drink it in together. But not as if we're drinking from a fire hydrant, which we could be here very easily. Um, Like I said, there's just too much in this story to retain. 
And so we're going to take it on one aspect at a time. And if you take notes, there is an insert in your program where you can follow along with each of these sections and fill in notes and details and, and other stuff in that order. Okay, so we're going to start with the details. This group over here, we're going to talk about some of the details, some of the facts, not all of them. We're going to spread out details over all five sections, all five aspects. But this aspect is more about the pieces of the passage rather than the symbolism in the passage. Okay. This encounter at the wedding happened at the end of the first week of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 1, we see the phrase, the next day, a few times. There's some chronological tracking going on here. Jesus is on the move. He's moving from Bethsaida by the Sea of Galilee, southwest to Cana. And John's passage here includes the journey to the wedding in Cana. The third day in verse 1 could have put Jesus in Cana on his third day of travel. Remember, he's on foot here. Or it could have meant a specific day of the week. But it could have meant when he started traveling on that third day, He arrives in Cana for this wedding. Jesus was invited to this wedding along with his disciples. Jesus' mother was invited as well. We'll talk more about that soon. All that has led to a lot of speculation about whose wedding it was. And given Mary's role here that she takes some responsibility in the wedding for solving problems, that kind of thing. We're kind of led to believe that it could be somebody very close to Mary and Jesus and their family. They're invited to this. Could have been a relative. Could have been a close friend. Because it's in Cana. Because Jesus had just met Nathaniel and called him. Um, There are some who believe that this might have been Nathaniel's wedding. There's lots of speculation. But we don't know for sure. There was a crisis at the wedding. We're going to talk about that more with the romantics in the back. But I want to mention the exchange between Jesus and Mary, his mother, in this section here, okay? It's a very interesting one. Mary approaches Jesus about the wine crisis. She believed that Jesus could do something about what was going on. Why would she believe that? Well, remember the angel and the virgin birth and all that stuff. Okay, so she's got some understanding of who he is. She believes that he can do something about this crisis at the wedding a wedding of somebody that she's obviously close to, that their family is close to. And so she calls on him. And I think we need to understand at least a little bit about Jesus' response to her. He says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, if your mother asks you to do something to help at a family member or a friend's wedding, how thrilled do you think she'd be to hear you say, Woman, what does this have to do with me? So before we scold Jesus for being rude, let's look at what was actually happening here and what he said. First of all, the term woman was not Jesus being rude. To address a woman that way, to say woman was polite. It wasn't intimate. It wasn't close. It's not the way that a son would address his mother. It wasn't rude, but it wasn't a son talking to his mother. Jesus is redefining his relationship with his mother here. I want you to try to wrap your head around the fact that Mary gives birth to Jesus, raises him, and at some point in her life has to come to terms with the fact that her savior is her son. And she needs him as her God, not as her child. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been? 
how complex that was for their relationship. Not an easy thing for a mother-son relationship. And he now calls her woman. And he's making it clear here that there's a difference. There's a difference in their relationship now. And there was. It wasn't going to be the same. We see that throughout the rest of the book of John. Things had changed. She was now woman to him. When he said, um, my hour has not yet come. He was referring to the time when he would become the final complete sacrifice on the cross and then be raised to life. And, and that time was coming, but not yet. And he's going to refer to it again and again throughout the book of John, throughout his ministry. And he was making it clear here in this passage that, that his ministry would not be determined by the will of his mother or the will of his friends or the will of anybody but God, his father. That was it. His will and his will only would determine Jesus' steps. Okay, those are some, some of the details that set up this event. There was an awful lot going on here. We're just covering one section now. Now I've got some background for the anthropologist back there in the culture section. We'll get back to the wedding soon, but we've got to talk about this. The account of the miracle at the wedding in Cana is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It doesn't show up there. It only shows up in John. Remember that John has so much material in his book that is unique to him and his writings. This is an example of that. One of the first things that we learned about the book of John was that it was written by John while he lived in the city of Ephesus. This is not random when it comes to the content of John's book. There's some depth behind the inclusion of John's account of this wedding miracle. And, and I had some fun digging into this. this. This connected with the anthropologist in me. That was my minor in college, and, and I was always just fascinated with anthropology. And so this just woke me up. Listen, the people of Ephesus at the time of John's writing were obsessed with a Greek god named Dionysius. In fact, in the ruins of Ephesus, as they've uncovered things, in the area of Ephesus where the wealthy people lived, as they've dug up the ruins there and come to the floor in many of the homes, they've found images of Dionysius in tile in the floor. They know how obsessed the people there were with Dionysius. And and I'm not going to show you those images because he was naked in all of them, so we're not doing that this morning. I read about this connection in a, in a Bible reference that I was looking at to, and to study for this. Um, and then I, I had to just go off on my own and do some research, research on this. Um, I cannot share everything that I found. We do not have time for that this morning. Here are some of the highlights that I think you should know. Among other things, Dionysius was the god of the grape harvest, winemaking, and wine. Hmm. And we can easily imagine then the impact this event would have on those who believed in Dionysius. This gets their attention. In Dionysius' story, this god was born, killed, and then rose from the dead. In Dionysius' story, he could restore dead souls to life. Those who worshipped this Greek god participated in a ritual that included a meal of bread and wine. 
these symbolize the body and blood of Dionysius. Would the people of Ephesus connect with this miracle that Jesus performed? Of course they would. Jesus does what their God could never do in a way that was very relevant to them and really caught their attention. Let me shine a light on God's love for his creation. How much does he love the people of Ephesus, a very crooked, twisted town, city, that he would do this, that he would prompt John to include this story in his book written in Ephesus for the people of Ephesus, for the church in Ephesus and beyond. He met them where they were and and, and he showed them who he is. So does he love this city any less? Does he love you any less? Not at all. He came to us and he took on the form of a human because he loves us. All right, on to the back of the room to the romantics. Let's talk about the wedding for a little bit. At the time of Jesus' ministry, weddings were big celebrations that included entire communities and they could last for a week. The week ended with the wedding ceremony. There's all this stuff that happened during the week and masses of people were there. As I mentioned earlier, Mary and Jesus and the disciples had been invited to this wedding. Mary's concern for the wine crisis points to the fact that she was closely connected to this wedding. She was more than just an invited guest. She took it upon herself to address the wine shortage. And running out of wine was definitely a crisis. The groom's family was expected to provide everything that was needed to keep a massive party going for a week. Food, drink, festivities, the works. If the groom's family ran out of wine before the celebration actually reached the point of the ceremony, it was a disaster. Social train wreck. And the history books show us what the response to that could look like. On some occasions, if the groom did not fulfill his responsibility and the wine didn't last the whole week, they ran out or ran out of something else, the bride's family would sue the groom's family. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal. They did not provide what they were expected to. And everybody was embarrassed and up in arms and the groom's family would get sued. And so compassionately... Jesus saved the family from this embarrassment. In fact, he went over the top in doing so. This story has to make us wonder why this would be the first sign that Jesus did. Why a wedding? Why would it be a wedding? Why did Jesus start out his ministry with his baptism, calling his first disciples, and and then go to a wedding? Why was this so important? Why start there? Our theological minds can really run with this, and they should The institution of marriage was given to us by God and it symbolizes his unconditional love and his covenant with us, his church, his bride. He's committed himself to us for life, for eternity. He's laid his life down for us. He promised to never leave us, never forsake us. In God's new covenant, Ushered in by Jesus, he promises to give us new life, to rescue us, to set us free, to love us unconditionally, to demonstrate his forgiveness and grace and unfailing love. Of course, Jesus started to reveal himself through a sign done at a wedding. It makes sense. There's so much significance in this. One thing that I can see is Jesus showing us here that he is the bridegroom. 
our bridegroom, the church. He's our bridegroom. It was the groom and his family who had to provide the wine for the wedding. And here's Jesus providing the wine at this wedding. More on that when we get to the partiers over here. There's a wedding ceremony coming for one of us, for all of us, one day soon. We just sang about that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The bridegroom is coming back for his bride. We're just waiting for him now. Look into this story and see his sufficiency for us. It's beyond compare. I'm very grateful that we've been given this incredible account of an ordinary human occurrence, a wedding, touched by the extraordinary power of Jesus Christ. Speaking of extraordinary, let's move on to the Pentecostals. Before we talk about the miracle, I want to show you a video of a magician that I enjoy watching. His name's Michael Carbonaro. Go ahead, Mark. These? Oh, that's cute. All right, a card magnet. Oh, I love this book, though. <laughs> I had that book when I was a kid. It's a good one. There's like pop-up I books. I love little kid books. Yeah. Oh, these are fun. Yeah. Little zoo animals. This is a new edition, though, right? I don't know. I've never seen this. You haven't seen this book? No. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Let's get. I think mine used to be a little bit thicker. They're making them really thin now. It's amazing how they can like yeah. come up with like ways to like make stuff just like pop up like that. Mm-hmm. But when I was a kid, the one was a. Uh, it was a surprise. Cause it was a surprise, and they still. Oh, that's better. Oh, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That is so crazy. The last page was like this little, like box, yeah. and then. That's awesome. Because oh, wow. I, I wasn't allowed to have pets as a kid. So, okay, here's a bunch of books with yeah. animals in it. It's like pets. What do they do with this one now? Oh, this is great. Yeah, mine was this. Oh, it's good. <laughs> yeah, mine was a salamander. How did they do that? I don't know. It's, it's like a they, real fish? Yeah. And how did the book close? I'm so confused how that just happened. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Mine used to be, it was like a little lizard or a salamander. I don't think you're allowed to give those to kids anymore. <laughs> but. That book just, Yeah, that's what? great. It just pops up. Hold you on a second. just pull that out of there, correct? Yeah. I mean, that just happened, but this is hard, and that is flat, and that wasn't. Yeah. That's a lot of fish. Yeah. So this guy is just a, a master at sleight of hand. Um, he does these things on people and just blows their minds. And um, he does stuff that, that leaves me just shaking my head. But I've also seen some of his episodes where he explains how he does what he does. And it's just sleight of hand. It's illusions. Um, it's pretty fascinating. Now, what Jesus did to the water in this story is no illusion. There was no sleight of hand involved here. This was a miracle. Jesus made water turn into wine. Lots of water became lots of wine. And there were absolutely no tricks involved. On a simple level, notice that Jesus had the water jugs filled to the top. There would be no room to add anything. And that meant something because the wine that people drank in those times was usually diluted with water down to a third to a tenth of its original strength. And so a simple way to make this a trick would be to leave space in the jars and add pure fermented grape juice to the water when no one was looking. But this was no trick. 
Jesus, the creator, remember back to Peter's message on this, created something from water. Like at the very beginning, when the waters were parted and God created the heavens and the earth in the expanse, Jesus creates something where only water exists. And he created with nothing and by doing nothing. Jesus didn't touch the jars. He didn't fill the jugs himself. He didn't pour the wine out himself. He just gave instructions with his words and the wine came into being. So can I ask you something important about this account? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that no one but Jesus could have turned this water into wine? Do you believe that no one but Jesus could have created something from nothing? Do you believe that this was indeed a supernatural display of God's power? This was very clear evidence that Jesus is God. Jesus heals, healed the sick. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He made the dead come to life. This was one of those miracles that only he could do. And he's real. And he is omnipotent. This was a miracle. Do you believe that someone could have this kind of power? Jesus is asking us to believe. Sometimes in the Bible, we have to just pause and watch a miracle. We're not studying. We're observing God's power demonstrated for us. We're being given proof that Jesus is God's son. And that same power that turned about 150 gallons of water into high-quality wine, as if the wine could have come out as cheap wine, is available to turn our ordinary lives into extraordinary lives. That same power is available to us. And one more thing that I have to point out about this miracle. Um, This was not some random display of power that Jesus did. This was a sign. This was the first of seven signs that we'll see in John that are meant to show us who Jesus is. And I can't wait until we can put them all together in one beautiful picture. We'll see Jesus more clearly when we're done. It's fascinating to see what he reveals in each of these signs. All right, the partiers are getting impatient. Here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want to change the way that we see wine this morning. I hope you'll see its significance after this. In Jesus' time, grape juice was fermented for the sake of preserving it. Drinking it was obviously acceptable to Jesus. Getting drunk on it was not acceptable. It was never meant to be used in a recreational way. It was never meant to take the edge off. It was never meant to alter someone's personality. Wine was significant. It always was to God. The jars that Jesus used in this sign were also significant. These types of jars were used specifically for storing the water used in Jewish Jewish ritual washings for ritual purification. These jars were stone jars. They were used for the purification water because the stone they were made of could not be contaminated. It purified the water that was kept in it by removing the impurities that were in the water. So remember this. Jesus replaced the water that was used for purification with the wine that symbolized his blood. The only thing that could bring us the purification that we needed to stand clean before our father. The water in those jars was used for external ritual purification. Jesus' blood was shed for our internal, spiritual, and eternal purification. 
We've been washed clean by his blood. And here he is introducing it right away. The connection between Jesus and the wine goes even deeper than that. God associates wine with his joy and his gladness throughout the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. This miracle pointed to a day mentioned more than once in God's word. This is Amos 9, verses 13 and 14. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Isaiah 25 has the same kind of imagery in it. Isaiah talks about the feast that awaits us, which includes well-aged wine, a symbol of God's joy and gladness. Jeremiah prophesies about our joy over God's provision of grain, wine, oil, a garden, and herds of livestock, all symbolic of God's abundant provision and joy. The prophet Joel speaks of mountains dripping with sweet wine in the abundance of what God is bringing for us with Christ's return. Wine is, this, is a symbol of the gladness and the joy that are ours in Jesus Christ. It is abundant. This is what he wants us to see here. He is offering us fullness. Back in John 1.14 and verses 16 to 17, we already saw John write of the fullness of God's grace and truth come in Jesus Christ. We've received through Jesus grace upon grace. Jars filled to the brim with his goodness. I love the fact that Jesus provides the best wine to be served last at the wedding, just like he did with his own life. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And then finally, the best of the best came. Jesus himself came and fulfilled all the prophecy. God saved the best for last. Church, from his fullness, we've all received. From the fullness of this story, we've all received. This is about the details, the facts, Jesus' identity. This is about the culture. God speaking to a city in a very relevant way. This is about the wedding, an ordinary yet extraordinary way of Jesus showing us who he is. This is about the miracle, the sign in which we can know, see Jesus This is about the wine, a symbol of God's joy and gladness, a future picture of God's abundant blessing. This is about the fullness that God brings to us, the fullness of his grace. What is this about for you personally this morning? John himself wrote this book. And all this that he's written has a purpose. He wrote down things like this miracle, this sign for a reason. He stated that reason in in John 20, verses 30 and 31. We'll keep referring to that as we go, where he wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, listen, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what was the end result of this story? Well, that's found in verse 11 in our passage today, where it says, and his disciples believed in him. John didn't end this story with a record of how many new believers resulted from Jesus' miracle. We read that Jesus' disciples, his followers, believed in him. Church, 
bride of Jesus, the groom. Do you believe in him? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Do you believe that God poured out the fullness of his grace on you through Jesus Christ? We just finished looking at the first week of Jesus' ministry. As we move forward in this series, let's invite God to continue to show us the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his truth, the fullness of his love for us. I'm going to invite the ushers to come now and the worship team as well. And I want to pray with you as they come, and I want us to, to just take a brief moment to talk to God face to face. So bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Let's just meet God here. And if you do, if you do believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, just restate that to God in a prayer right now. Just say, Father, I believe. I believe that you sent your Son and that Jesus is your Son. If you don't, will you please just be honest with God? Just say, God, I'm, I'm not sure I believe. He can handle it. And look back then at what we've just, ta- just looked at in the book of John. Look back at what we've talked about. Look at this fact, this event, this miracle that took place. Not so that Jesus could show off. Not so that he could prove he was more powerful than Dionysus. No, he did it so that you would believe that he is the son of God, that Jesus is the son of God. If you're realizing for the very first time that, okay, I do believe, then please say that to God right now. Say, God, I believe if you don't, just tell God, God, help me believe. Open my eyes. Let me see you in this. Father, I praise you for the ways that you show us yourself, for all of the things that you did to let us know that you're there, to let us see who you are, to draw us back to you, to bring us into your presence, into your family. Ask, Father, that you would continue to speak to us loud and clear about who you are. And that not one of us would just view this as a theological study, but that we would leave this room believing that we just saw the Son of God turn water into wine. That your power was demonstrated through him so that we would believe. God, I do believe. And I'm so grateful for what you've shown me about yourself, for how you've spoken to me, for the things that you gave me, like this miracle that brought me to the point of believing in you, for the lives that you put in front of me so I could look at what you've done in their lives and believe that you're real, that you're here, 
I thank you that you're, you're, you love us so much that you're willing to speak to our city, to our communities, our neighborhoods, to each of our families, to us as individuals, and to this church. And I pray that you just keep speaking. We love you. We praise you for who you are. We believe. And we ask that you would guide us along this path as disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.